The last several weeks, we've been in a series called Best Story Ever, and what we've been doing is we've been looking at the Bible at 30,000 feet, and we've finished the Old Testament, and now we've come to the New Testament. The Old Testament is a, an enormous story that all is looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah, a promised deliverer. And finally, in the New Testament, the Messiah comes, and his name is Jesus, and so that's what we looked at last week. Last week, we were in the first chapter of Matthew, which gives you the birth story and the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And Matthew is trying to show us through these things that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited king. He is the promised Messiah. So, for example, he's a descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of David. He's born of a virgin, just like Isaiah predicted. So, last week, we were introduced to Jesus, the Messiah, but... Now what happens next? What does he do? What kind of Messiah is he going to be? And we're going to begin to look at that tonight and then over the next several weeks. So the Messiah comes, and what does he do? You might think that the Messiah would show up and, and it would just be a bunch of fireworks, that you know, surely his fame would just instantly sweep all through the nation of Israel because of his supernatural birth, or maybe because of his other messianic credentials. But instead, do you know what Jesus does for the first 30 years of his life? Nothing. Or at least nothing that we really know very much about. Jesus spends the first 30 years of his life in obscurity. We barely know anything about that period of his life. Apparently, it was pretty, pretty ordinary. The one significant exception is that there's one little episode in Luke chapter 2 that tells us about Jesus' childhood. And one of the things that Luke tells us in there is Luke 2.52, uh, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So all of us here, well, maybe not all of us, most of us, technically all of us, are supposed to be between the ages of 18 and 28. <laughs> I, I, I'm an exception, but... Uh, I hopefully have a, a good excuse for sticking around. Anyway, all of us are in this stage of life called young adulthood. What are you doing with that stage of your life? Can you look at your own life and see ways that God is helping you grow in wisdom and in favor with God and with men? You know, uh, one of the things about the Bible is that one of the Bible's favorite metaphors for describing people uh, are trees. So, for example, remember when Jesus heals the guy who's blind and he, he kind of, it's a, it's a two-step miracle. Like, he touches his eyes once and the guy uh, says, well, I, you know, I can see people walking around. They look like trees. And then Jesus touches his eyes again and then he can see perfectly. And so, it's one of the places in Scripture where you see there's sort of this comparison being drawn between trees and people. One of the things about trees, trees are half-hidden. You know, you can only see the top part of the tree. The only way that that tree is there is if there's another half of that tree that's hidden underground. It's the root system. And one of the things that I think Jesus modeled, and hopefully that we're pursuing in our own lives, is the hidden part of your life. You know, the part of your life that no one sees is going to make the difference in how far you go on for Jesus in your own life. So that might mean the time alone that you spend with God. That might mean the time that you devote to truly knowing Scripture meditating on it, knowing it well. And so for the first 30 years of his life, Jesus 
was doing things like that. You know, there's a reason why every moment of his life we do read about Jesus is constantly quoting scripture. I wonder where he learned all of that. I wonder when he learned all of that. So, Jesus lives the first 30 years of his life in obscurity. But then, a critical event happens that launches Jesus into his public ministry. And it's the coming of a guy called John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, John is a relative of Jesus. Um, He also has a miraculous birth story, which you can read about in Luke chapter 1. And John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last of the capital P prophets who were specially sent by God to the nation of Israel. And in the Old Testament, John was prophesied as the forerunner of the Messiah. So he was someone who would go before the Messiah to announce that the Messiah was coming. And Matthew actually quotes a prophecy from Isaiah about this special person and says, hey, that guy is John. And the prophecy says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So that's who John the Baptist was. And in Matthew 3 verse 2, we're told that John comes preaching a very particular, very revolutionary message. And the message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, question. This is actually not a rhetorical question. What, what do you think would have been going through the minds of the Jews when they heard John say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near? Confusion? What was that, Cameron? Excitement? Yeah, okay. What was that, Stephen? Judgment? Yeah. Well, I'm actually, Cameron, I'm going to pick on you. You said the word excitement, and I, I, I think that's probably a pretty good guess. I think they probably would have been thinking, oh my goodness, it's almost here. It's almost here. You know, remember God's promise to David back in the Old Testament. The promise was that David was going to have a descendant who was going to reign as king forever. And kings reign over kingdoms, right? And so the Israelites had a promise from God that one day God was going to re-raise up the kingdom of Israel. I mean, it was like a, you know, make Israel great again kind of thing. One of the clearest places that that kingdom is promised is in the book of Daniel. So I want to read you an example of a verse that I think might have been going through their minds when they hear John the Baptist saying what he says. This is Daniel 2.44. This is a prophecy uh, where Daniel says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So the Israelites are probably really on the edge of their seat because at last the forerunner of the Messiah is here and the forerunner is saying the kingdom's right around the corner. And then the Messiah himself shows up. Jesus comes to John and is baptized by him. And then in Matthew chapter 4, when John is put into prison, Jesus instantly picks up the ball where John dropped it and he begins to preach the exact same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So this is Jesus' way of endorsing John's ministry. It's Jesus the Messiah finally stepping out of obscurity into the spotlight to begin his ministry. 
But then we've got the question all over again. Okay, now Jesus is starting out his ministry, but what kind of Messiah is Jesus going to be? What kind of Messiah is he going to be? And Matthew begins to drop you some clues. So first, there's Jesus' temptation. So beginning in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. And in all three of the devil's temptations, Jesus resists him. He passes the test. Then in the middle of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins to call his disciples. By the way, all of them are Jewish. By the way, there are 12 of them. Now, how many sons did Jacob have in the Old Testament? How many tribes of Israel were there? So, so what are we supposed to conclude Matthew's trying to tell us? Jesus, Matthew is saying, he's reprising the history of Israel. You know, remember that God had called Israel to a special mission. They were to be his light to the nations. They were supposed to show the other nations what God was really like so that the other nations would be drawn to him. But Israel failed the mission. They fell into sin. They fell into idolatry. They were the very opposite of what they were supposed to be. But now, here comes Jesus. Jesus is Jewish. He's an Israelite. He's the Jewish Messiah. And think about this. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were led into the wilderness for 40 years where they were tested by God. And they failed. But now here comes Jesus. He's led into the wilderness for 40 days, and he succeeds. Here comes Jesus who gathers around him 12 followers just like the 12 tribes of Israel. It's as though Matthew is saying, all Israel's sin and failure, Jesus is the Messiah who's come to redeem all of it. So what kind of Messiah is Jesus? He's the one who lived the life Israel should have lived. He's the perfect one, and he is the righteous one. And that takes us to the passage that we're looking at tonight. We're looking tonight at the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll notice I've actually printed the whole thing, and I'll explain why in a a few minutes. The next thing Matthew gives us in chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached, the most famous sermon ever preached. And in this sermon, Jesus is spelling out what true righteousness is. So remember Moses in the Old Testament. Moses is the one who leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he's also Israel's great lawgiver. So at Mount Sinai, God gave Israel the law, that, you know, among which were the Ten Commandments. And the law was the revelation of God's righteousness. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus does something radical. He takes the law of Moses and he actually raises the bar. So for example, look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to an older generation, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subjected to judgment. And whoever insults a brother will be brought before the council. And whoever says fool will be sent to fiery hell. Let me read you one more. This is Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a legal document. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman 
commits adultery. So do you see how Jesus is taking the law of Moses and he's raising the bar? In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses actually made a prophecy about the Messiah. Uh, this is Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 18, and he's talking about God. Moses says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. So who does Jesus sound like here in the Sermon on the Mount? He sounds quite a bit like Moses, doesn't he? He's laying down the law. So Matthew is saying Jesus is the prophet like Moses that the Old Testament predicted. It's another messianic prophecy that he checks off. And in fact, by the way, remember how Moses, he's the guy who's credited with writing the first five books of the Old Testament. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books. Well, interesting little detail. If you read through Matthew, you'll notice that Matthew includes five major speeches of Jesus, mini, mini books, if you will. And you can spot them because after each one, Matthew adds a comment like, you know, when Jesus had finished saying these things. So this is like Matthew saying to us, Jesus is kind of like a new Moses. He's the true lawgiver, the teacher of what true righteousness really looks like. Now, tonight, you know, the, the sermon is long. There's so much in it that we don't have time to go over all of it. But instead, what I want to do is I want to try to sum it up for you by giving us three lessons that we learn from the Sermon on the Mount. Three lessons, and the first one is that Jesus is true righteousness. Jesus is true righteousness. So earlier, I said that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spells out what true righteousness is. Well, well why? Well, in, in the time of Jesus, the Jewish leaders of his day had taken the law, the law of Moses, and they had twisted it. So they had invented all kinds of clever loopholes to avoid doing what the law actually said. So here's an example. Uh, the, the fifth commandment. Anyone know what the fifth commandment is, just offhand? Yeah, right. Honor your father and mother. Now for us today, um, and you know, probably means somewhat what it might have meant to them back then. You know, like uh, eventually your parents... Uh, get older, they might need your time, your assistance, maybe even your financial support. You know, sometimes um, you, know, you have to care for your parents out of your own, you know, your own purse as they get older. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were probably, you know, they might have had a similar situation, but they twisted that command by, by saying this. They, they said, well, you know, whatever help you might have otherwise received from me, mom and dad, that's actually a gift that I've devoted to God. So I don't actually have to, to help you. Now, you know, they probably tried to justify it by appealing to the first commandment. You know, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so they probably said something like, oh, you know, mom and dad, I can't give you my time or my money or my attention because, you know, remember, God comes first. So, you know, too bad. I, I'm too busy serving God to help. I'm too busy with all of my churchy activities. So, you know, I'm not technically sinning. What Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does is he closes the loopholes. He closes the loopholes. We've already seen a couple examples where, where Jesus, he raises the stakes. He makes the Ten Commandments even harder to keep. So, you know, this is where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I'm actually demanding more. Or here, here's actually another example. <clears throat> this is Matthew 5, 33 through 37. 
where Jesus is teaching on oaths. Now, he's not talking about, like, curse words. Instead, he's talking about truth-keeping. Here's what he says. Again, you have heard that it was said to an older generation, do not break an oath, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, do not take oaths at all, not by heaven, because it is the throne of God, not by earth, because it is his footstool, and not by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, because you are not able to make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Now, what is he talking about here? Back in the day, the rabbis had concocted a pretty elaborate system so that you could get out of keeping your word. So one commentator gives a couple examples. Uh, Back then, the rabbis said, well, you know, if you swear toward Jerusalem, then your word is binding. You you have have to keep it. But if you swear by Jerusalem, well, then it's not binding and you can get out of it. Or uh, they thought, you know, if you swear by God, well, that is binding. But if you swear by heaven and earth, well, that's not binding. And Jesus just says here, hey, no loopholes. Just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. True righteousness isn't a matter of who's clever enough to invent the most loopholes. And in fact, do you want to know how Jesus ultimately defined righteousness? He defined it as perfection. So look at Matthew 5, verse 20. This is one of the most important verses in the whole sermon. For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the Pharisees were the most righteous people that there were in that day, at least in the eyes of the people. And so Jesus is saying you have to exceed even that. And then here's another one of the most important verses in the sermon. It's Matthew 5:48. Jesus says, "Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." So Jesus defines true righteousness, and he defines it as perfection. And and not only that, he is true righteousness. And this is really crucial because sometimes, especially in our culture, There's a stereotype that in the Old Testament, God is this God of wrath and he's kind of mean. But then in the New Testament, you get Jesus who's, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And it's true that Jesus is gentle. In fact, he's the gentlest person who's ever lived. The Bible says, Isaiah 42, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. But the Sermon on the Mount reveals that Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy. And because Jesus is the only person who has ever kept the entire Sermon on the Mount, he is true holiness. He is true righteousness. And in that sense, the Sermon on the Mount tells us something really crucial about the kind of Messiah Jesus is. He is both gentle and terrifying. He is both holy and merciful. He is both the lion and the lamb. Let me read you something. Here's how one author puts this. Talking about Jesus. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he said that he would come on the clouds of heaven in the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him 
and the little ones nestled in his arms. No one was ever half so kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. He would not break the bruised reed, and his whole life was love. Yet on one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and traitors fell over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself he would not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts that confronts you in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of a personality. And the Sermon on the Mount reveals the true Jesus. Both gentle and holy, both lion and lamb, and true righteousness. So that's the first lesson. Jesus is true righteousness. And then lesson number two from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is after our hearts, not just our behaviors. Jesus is after our hearts, not just our behaviors. Now, he is after behavior. You know, he wouldn't have said all these things if he didn't actually take seriously, you know, our own behaviors and actions. But there's something he's after that goes deeper than that. So you know how I said all all the people in Jesus' day, they were inventing these loopholes to get around the law. Now, the problem with that was that all of their so-called righteousness was fake. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls them out on it. So, for example, he says, this is um, in chapter 6, Be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Thus, whenever you do charitable giving, do not blow a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in synagogues and on streets so that people will praise them. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. But when you do your giving, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your gift may be in secret, and your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So Jesus is calling them out, and what's he calling them out for? Well, he's saying, look, you know, when you give to people, you're not really giving to people because you really love them. You're giving to them because you love yourself. You're trying to use it so that people will look at you and think that you're this amazing person. You might try to look at you and think you're an amazing person. Outwardly, it seems like you're truly righteous, but inwardly, in your heart, you are seething with selfishness. And Jesus says that is wrong. So why the emphasis on secrecy? Why the emphasis on secret giving? Well, because if no one else sees except God, that hopefully guarantees that your motive is a little bit more pure. So now in the Sermon on the Mount, what is Jesus doing throughout the whole sermon? He's going after the heart. Notice how Jesus is always pushing the law to the level of the heart. So look at Matthew 5, 21, 22 again about murder. You know, Jesus says anyone who's even angry with his brother means that you're liable for judgment. You know, the thing about anger, a lot of times you think about anger as, you know, your face turns red and you just start yelling and shouting and screaming. No, 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 no. I mean, you all know you can be angry with someone. Like, and I'm talking unrighteous anger here. You can be angry with someone and no one but you can know. You know, you can be thinking all kinds of hateful thoughts against someone. You can be seething in yourself with loathing for another person. And outwardly, no one would know. You're a perfect little angel. <laughs> but inside, in the heart, you're filled 
with rage. Or Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you see the emphasis on the heart? So in the sermon, Jesus is saying, I'm not just after your behavior. I want your heart. (laughs) True righteousness flows from the heart. A sinful heart produces sinful behaviors. This is what Jesus means at the end of the sermon, by the way, where he says, a good tree only produces good fruit. A bad tree only produces bad fruit. So a sinful heart produces sinful behaviors. A pure heart produces righteous behaviors. Jesus wants your heart. He wants you to love him, not just feign obedience to him. And then, last of all, lesson number three, the problem here is that if Jesus is really pushing things to the level of the heart, we all have a huge problem. You know, it's one thing if you can try to keep the law of Moses through all these loopholes, and maybe you're even someone like Paul. You know, Paul said, hey, I was pretty good at it, you know, (laughs) Philippians 3. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless, kept all those 613 commands. But the problem is, if it's really about the heart, you know, who, you know, it says in the Old Testament, who can say that they're, you know, pure and without sin, if we're talking about that, talking about the heart. And so the third lesson of the sermon, I'm actually, I'm, I'm stealing this quote. It's a quote uh, that Pastor Tim Keller has used, just because I can't think of a better way to say it. The third lesson from the Sermon on the Mount, we are far worse than we ever imagined, and yet far more loved than we could ever dream. We are far worse than we ever imagined and far more loved than we can ever dream. Um, sometimes I've seen on, uh, like in you know, different places like that poster that has the iceberg on it. And you can see the iceberg and you can see the, the top 10% that's visible above water. But then underneath you see the you know, 90% enormous chunk of ice. And I think that what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to do is it's trying to show you what's underneath the surface. We are, we're so quick to justify ourselves that we are only going to want to notice the top little 10% of our hearts, of our sin. And we say, oh, I'm not actually that bad. Jesus says, oh, but wait a minute. Have you really been honest with yourself? Have you really examined the thoughts and motives of your heart to see who you really are? And if that's, if that's really what, what the sermon is doing, well, then think about what else it said. I mean, it said, be perfect. It said, you've got to surpass the Pharisees. It said, you know, a single flash of unrighteous anger, you deserve to be damned. A single lustful thought, you deserve to go to hell. Now, that means the proper response to the Sermon on the Mount should never, ever, ever be, well, you know, I think I'm doing okay. You know, I think I, I may not be keeping every single thing here, but you know, I think I'm doing okay. No, no, no. If you take Jesus' word seriously, the proper response to the Sermon on the Mount, at least at first, ought to be complete and utter panic. Like Jesus says, we're all going to hell. Our culture is willing to admit that we're not perfect, but we still think we're pretty good. Jesus is revealing that we are far more wretched and depraved than we could have ever believed, and that therefore we need him far more than we ever realized. There's an old preacher named David Martin Lloyd-Jones, and there's a little story I heard about him once. He said that whenever a, a Christian would come to him, and, uh, or someone would come to him, and he would ask them, are you a Christian? 
if their response to him was something along the lines of, well, you know, you're asking if I'm a Christian. Well, I'm trying to be. David Martin Lloyd-Jones instantly knew that that person didn't truly understand the gospel. Because the gospel is not that we just, you know, have this set of rules, even if they're higher rules, like in the Sermon on the Mount, and our job is just to kind of, with our, you know, uh, thinking of like pole vaulters, you know how pole vaulters take the pole and they jump over the, the, the thing. You know, our job is not to kind of take our moral pole vaulting pole and just leap over the rules and say, ah, you know, I did it. Do you, don't you see that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he completely walls off any possibility of any of us ever doing that. Instead, the best response to the Sermon on the Mount is to fall on our knees and say, Jesus, I need you. This is why the sermon actually starts with the Beatitudes. And we didn't really look at them very much tonight, but if you look at the Beatitudes, the very first one, this is my favorite translation of the first Beatitude from an older uh, British translation of the Bible. Matthew 5 verse 3, and it says, How blessed are those who know their need of God. How blessed are those who know their need of God. Jesus said he didn't come for the people who thought they were healthy. He came for those who knew that they were sick. And the Sermon on the Mount is like a really rigorous doctor's checkup that's designed to show you, hey, you're a little more under the weather (laughs) spiritually than maybe you thought you were. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to end in despair. It's meant to drive us in our need to Jesus so that we might come to him for the salvation that we desperately require. Because Jesus is the only one who fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount, lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And on the cross, Jesus was paying the penalty for all the times where we have fallen short of God's holy standard. So that for all who put their trust in him, who have said, Jesus, you are my true righteousness, we can know the joy of forgiveness rather than the threat and the terror of God's judgment. So hopefully that just gives you a little bit of an introduction tonight to what the Sermon on the Mount and what the beginning of Jesus' ministry is all about.